I hadn't planned to preach on the reading from 2 Timothy, but whenever I hear that reading, I'm thinking, what were in those parchments (laughs) and books? You know, part of the thing that helped uh, the spread of Christianity in the New Testament period was technology. Just as in the Protestant Reformation, the invention of movable type, assisted in the process of producing books that could be cheaply made and shipped all over the place, including the ancient universities in England where they were read by Thomas Cranmer and the others uh, of a reforming temperament and they began to learn about Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and Bullinger and all these people on the continent. And during Paul's time, the Codex... The early book was the thing, even though it was hand-copied, you could carry around. It was portability, and that helped um, a great deal. Here's a little piece of 3995 information that you can file on ice and amaze your friends. The earliest codex of the New Testament in the order that we now possess it, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John... And so on, uh, is something called the Codex Sinaiticus, which was discovered in a monastery on Mount Sinai uh, called the Monastery of St. Catherine. And a German count named Tischendorf in 1840 was visiting the monastery to look at the icons. And he was there and got up one morning and went over and was near the kitchen where some old monk was preparing breakfast for the other monks, and he noticed that he was tearing an old parchment page out of a book and using it to start the fire in the stove. So he said, where did you get that? And he said, well, there's a a whole library over there of these old books. Nobody looks at it anymore. So, So he went over there, and he found this book, the Codex Sinaiticus. And when the abbot caught him looking at it, he said, you've got to give that back to me. Don't do that. And he said, just, just let me look at it overnight, and I'll give it back to you. And he said, oh, well, okay. And so Tischendorf pinched it and left the monastery, and he uh, did a thorough look over and brought it back. So we fast forward now to uh, the period just before the Russian Revolution, And the monks who wanted to curry favor with the czar said, you know, we ought to give this codex to, it's the earliest one we can date, you know, about 360, 370 A.D. Let's give it to the czar as a gift. So they gave it to the czar as a gift, and he had it. The Russian Revolution happens, and the czar's out, And Lenin and his followers are in. And at about 1920 or 21, when they were running out of money, someone said, you know, this this may be valuable. We don't have any use for this, but this may be valuable. Let's sell it. And so they sold it to the English government for $3 million. And you can see the Codex Sinaiticus today in the British Museum. It is one of the most reliable of the texts so that when you read, the, read Greek in the Greek New Testament, 
in the academic apparatus, there is a Hebrew character that stands for Codex Sinaiticus. So the variant that you see here is, is listed down there. The other big reliable manuscript, this is, this is information you might use someday, is Codex B, which is also called Codex Vaticanus. Guess where that might be? <laughs> Books. Today, we transfer the Feast of St. Luke to this Sunday. You're permitted to, to do that for your patronal feast. So, actually, St. Luke's Day is October the 18th, but this is the Sunday nearest October the 18th, and so we can celebrate our patronal feast and uh, our patron, which is St. Luke the Evangelist. So I'm going to say some things to you about St. Luke. I'm going to say something to you about the two-volume set he wrote that's in the New Testament, the Gospel according to St. Luke and the Book of Acts, both written by the same person. Then to say some things as I go about how Luke understood um, the, the meaning and message of Jesus in his earthly ministry and how by extension he understood uh, things that we do as part of God's plan for the cosmos. Luke believes, perhaps more strongly than any of the other gospel writers, of the importance of each one of us having a role to play in God's plan for the universe and the affirmation that you have a purpose in your life in big and small ways, and that's very, very important. There's no reason to assume, I should say first, there are more parishes dedicated to St. Luke in our diocese than any other dedication. There's St. Luke's Los Gatos, St. Luke's Hollister, St. Luke's Holon, where Mother McNeil at this very moment is uh, presiding at the liturgy down there and preaching in Holon. It's sort of, you know, out there. And finally, St. Luke's Church in Atescadero. So we have a lot of St. Luke's churches. When this diocese was getting formed up and parishes were being built, there's, I don't think it's apocryphal, but there's a story I heard when I was on the Department of Missions in the Diocese of California when it was all one thing, that Bishop Block in the 1950s flew over parts of the diocese in a private plane and looking at property that might be available to build churches, and he would drop a flour sack out of the plane, and it would burst at the piece of property, and they marked it. So you could see it from the air where these places are. He also took advantage of uh, communities that were starting up after the war, uh, places like Pacifica, who thought, you know, we ought to encourage the building of churches here, and we'll give people property in order for them to build their churches. So they gave us a piece of property in Pacifica to do that, to build St. Edmund's Church. And the reason you may discover if you try to find an Episcopal Church in the old Diocese of California and R, and you need a map and GPS and everything else is because they built these churches in the most unlikely locations and the hardest to find places in the world. We've learned something about that as we move forward, I can assure you. So here's, here's some stuff about St. Luke's church, St. Luke's rather, um, and his gospel. St. Luke is the Shakespeare of the New Testament. His Greek is the best. He was a Gentile Christian. The gospel that he wrote dates 
uh, around 80 to 85 AD. And my suspicion is uh, that there are some central themes to Luke's gospel that we cannot ignore and are very important. There is no reason to believe that this gospel was not written by someone named Luke. There is no reason to believe that this gospel was not written by somebody who was a doctor. There are more healing stories in Luke's gospel than in any other gospel. Luke also has more teachings of Jesus, more sayings of Jesus, focusing on a social and economic justice and equity than any other gospel writer. So that loomed very large for him. I suspect that the situation on the ground was that Luke's community of Gentile Christians were a fairly well-heeled group of people in relative terms in the ancient Near East, and they were beginning to come to terms with what their role and vocation might be as they seek to be faithful. And how do they understand their circumstances in the age in which they live? Because Luke above all the other gospel writers, also believes that it is part of the plan of God for the church to come into existence. Some of the other gospels, particularly Mark's gospel, are written with a sense of urgency. Paul's writings that Jesus is going to come again anytime soon. So people in Luke's community were going, well, he's not here yet. <laughs> What do we do? Right? And what we do is seek to be faithful and come to terms with what in the book of Acts we clearly see. And that is, it is part of the plan of God for the church to come into, the, into being. Luke, more than any other gospel writer, is focused also on the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. So his gospel, the gospel according to St. Luke, is about the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in the person of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. And the book of Acts is about the transfer of the Holy Spirit of God to the people of God on Pentecost, which is at the beginning of the book of Acts. And now the church becomes both the beneficiary and the fiduciary of the Holy Spirit of God. What does it mean when we speak this way and people say the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit of God? If someone were to ask you what that might mean, one of the ways you can explain it is the perception of God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you. So the Spirit of God is the agency that affects and transforms your emotional, spiritual, and mental states in a way congruent with God's purposes, which brings to you a sense of interior, or can bring to you, a sense of serenity and clarity about your life, but it also enables you to reflect the true aspect of your humanity, which is always the willingness to extend, always the willingness to demonstrate some species of generosity in your life with all that you are and all that you have. I spoke about this in my sermon last week. What Luke, more than any other gospel writer, is, is writing about is a, a type of transformation that, that, that Jesus of Luke's gospel seeks to encourage 
in his followers. And that is the belief in the generous impulse, but understood in terms that reach beyond the thought world of their own day. So an anthropologist would describe what I'm talking about as the movement from kinship altruism. That's a fancy term for saying you look after your family and those near and dearest to you first. Your family comes first and you look after them. That's the focus of all your energy, the use of all your material substance, all of your generous impulse. And Jesus in his teaching and in Luke's gospel emphasizes what I'm seeking to do for you is to continue to do and intensify that, but also to understand that you are part of the family of humanity and that you need to bring this kinship altruism to everyone to learn how to do that in relationship. And what Luke, as a physician, is concerned about are the healing processes of God at work in the world, not just in physical and medical terms, but the way in which we bring healing, healing and holiness to all that we do in our life together. You'll notice that in Luke's Gospel, when he writes about the healings, <clears throat> he's not talking about curing people only. You know, most of us, when we seek healing, we want a return to the status quo ante. The way it was, right? We want to go to the doctor and we want to have symptom relief immediately. And those of us who've been in the helping professions know that sometimes the difference between curing and healing is very great. And we, can, we know people who have been healed but have not been cured. And so the transforming healing power of God has something to do with God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness being brought to bear on our internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental states. And the Jesus of Luke's gospel writes about that uh, more than any other gospel writer. So here's how Luke divides up his gospel and the book of Acts. The first thing that he's concerned about is the epoch of the law and the prophets. And he writes about that and Jesus speaks about it in the gospel. The second is the earthly ministry of Jesus. And the last thing is the era of the church which continues the work of Jesus. So Luke, the great historian of the New Testament, speaks about history as the history of salvation. You remember every year I talk during the 50 great 50 days of Easter about the fourfold shape of the Easter liturgy, and one of the pieces of that is the history of salvation. The people of God realized early on that when they heard the stories of their sacred literature, even prior to the writing of the New Testament, remember all references in the New Testament that are referring to the scriptures are referring to the Hebrew Bible. They're not referring to the Christian scriptures. And so what they say there is when we read these stories and we read this narrative, we begin to see that God has been present and at work always 
and we believe now uniquely focused in the person of Jesus Christ. The template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development. And by virtue of this, we learn some things because we read it and we think about it and we wonder what that might mean. And we realize that this may have some connection to our own personal history. Right? That's part of the cure versus healing. You begin to do some reflecting about your life and your own personal history. And as you come to understand the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in your life, you say, you know what? This is not arrogant or self-aggrandizing, uh, but my personal history is part of the history of salvation. I count. God needs me to fulfill his plan for the cosmos. And Luke, more than any other gospel writer, focuses on this in a very, very important way. This week, think about St. Luke as the patron of St. Luke's Los Gatos, and ask yourself the question, what would it mean if I were to understand what is what Luke is getting at about how God works in people's lives? So if you find it a little easier to practice acceptance, inclusiveness, love, justice, peace, some of those things are the fruits of the Spirit, you know. They're like um, kindness, gentleness, self-control. If you can do those things just that much better, you're going to have a big influence on the way things work in the world. And in fact, that's why we're necessary to this process. Amen.